Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. I'm your host, Rebecca Lavoy. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the documentary, Britney vs. Spears. They can enter and take possession of her house, kick people out. They can issue restraining orders and employ security guards. They can use Britney's money to pay attorneys for legal matters involving the estate, hire people for just about any position necessary, and pay them using funds from the estate. Today, we're talking to director Aaron Lee Carr. Britney Spears was a mega music star and favorite of the paparazzi. But after a series of very public meltdowns, the singer's parents and management team went to court to secure control of her vast fortune and her rocky life. The conservatorship allowed others to manage Spears' personal life and career, and a process designed to protect the elderly and infirm was used to control a celebrity who continued to make millions for those holding the reins. Two years ago, I began making a movie about Britney Spears with journalist Jenny Alescu. Hey, uh, this is Jenny Alescu. I'm not sure if you remember me from uh, years ago we met when I was working on a Rolling Stone article about Britney. The movie was going to be about her artistry and the media portrayal. And can someone say wow to those dance moves? But the story was also about power and control. Full of conspiracy and rumors. And no one would talk. Until they did. Aaron, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Excited to be here again. I would love to hear more about your fandom. I know that's not what the documentary is about, but it is where you start. And I do think that it explains the dignity and love that infuses this project. So can you just talk a little bit more about that? So when you're young and you only have like very limited money to buy something, the few things that you are able to spend money on become these priceless Uh, parts of your childhood. And when I um, had enough uh, sort of allowance money from cleaning the house, we got paid $2 a week. um, I was able to buy the single, um, hit me baby one more time. And I just was, I couldn't get enough of that song. And I thought it was like, oh, she's so cool, but she's wearing, um, you know, a Catholic school girl. Uh, I like, I was, I ended up going to Catholic school. And so I just saw a lot of myself in her, even though I do not look like Britney Spears. Uh, and she just became like, I think you can sort of call it a first love, right? Um, and listening to her music and then the, that whole album, I ended up like knowing every word to it. I mean, one thing I keep thinking about is that, you know, you documented Britney's career ascendance and she was sort of a part of like a brat pack of pop stars. A lot of them were alumni of the Mickey Mouse Club, Justin Timberlake, Christina Aguilera. But she was absolutely the target of more scrutiny than any of them, maybe even combined at the time, especially. Why do you think that was? I mean, it's a confluence of many things. One, she was dating somebody from the Mickey Mouse Club, and they became this couple that everyone wanted to watch and need to know every detail. So that was really a part of it. And this sort of forefront discussion about her sexuality, about her being uh, a virgin or not. I think that, uh, you know, I look at interviews with male journalists from the time and, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to use the word sickening. You know, I think that the amount of questioning about her sex life as a, uh, a literal minor at some points 
Um, and then very early on in her adulthood. Um, so it became this, she's in a relationship, is she a virgin? And then the fact that she had these huge tours with huge songs, that it was not one song, it was not two songs, it was many songs put together. And then when she had mental health struggles, you know, Americans, what do they like more than people being on a pedestal, but to knock them off? And so it became this perfect storm of she was the person to watch, but not really for the right reasons. Now, we see in your documentary that at some point you received this trove of documents from a confidential source. What was this film going to be? What were the contours of it before you got this confidential trove of documents? I think that I've been lucky enough to make films about women. So my perspective is usually like a feminist facing retelling. And that's first what I sold to Netflix. But I think that the present day of it got so intense and the investigation became, you know, every day things were coming in that obviously we're going to change it to sort of more of an Icarusian sort of vibe. Uh, I, you know, it was an incredibly intense roller coaster for two and a half years. Instead of seeing every document, we get you and Rolling Stone journalist Jenny Ellescu having a conversation about the importance of certain documents. There is this sort of producer debrief that you guys do. And I'm curious about why you chose that method to tell the story. You don't just interview her, but you guys sit down and talk together and kind of pour through them together. You could go into court a million times and keep doing hearing after hearing and filing after filing and analysis after analysis and never change anything. And she's still in this situation. Like, how do you how do you get out? You don't get out until you scream. Talk to me about the format for that, for the documentary, because I haven't seen you so present in one of your films before. I really liked it. And I want to hear more about that decision. You know, it was actually my executives at Netflix that were like, you know, should this be a part of it, given that you're coming from such a a fan centric, but also journalistic space? I also I mean, I the amount of information that was given to me was shocking. And so it was really about, um, you know, me and Jenny redacting the parts that we felt were too private and going through it together Uh, I thought that made a lot more sense of like me sharing this stuff with her um, after I had redacted it for her privacy purposes. And that's, you know, it's it's really what I find really confusing about uh, some of the reception that to make a film about Britney Spears is to exploit. And I think that one of the question I asked myself every single day, multiple times a day, how do I protect this person's information while still Uh, trying to figure out and show the truth of the situation. And so that's what that document exploration scenes were about, that there's some things we couldn't share and some things we could. And us understanding how that fit into Britney Spears getting into a conservatorship, but then having to remain in one. Hmm. That's really interesting. And that, of course, raises questions that I know I can't ask you. (laughs) So I'm not going to. You chose to not use some of the more famous and salacious and disturbing incidents that were really all over the media that we've all seen so many times um, in your film. You you don't show them. And I'm curious also about that decision. Um, You know, we don't see the head shaving incident. We don't see, you know, the things that were just everywhere. That was on purpose, I'm assuming, right? Totally. I think that we've all seen 
those images. And I did not need to make another film that re-traumatized her in those ways. And also other people with mental health struggles. I think if you if you turned a camera on any one of us during our struggles in our 20s, it would be incredibly uncomfortable. And so, uh, you know, really thinking about how do I move this story forward and telling the events that led to the conservatorship, which, you know, happened on that night of the hospital, the first hospitalization, but that I don't, we don't need to see those images anymore. Um, We know that they exist. Our brain can conjure them if we want to, but I was not going to be another film that did that. Hmm. Now, we know that Brittany struggled with mental illness, and I found myself wondering if her life were very different, if she were my kid, if she were anybody else's kid. Is this a treatable mental illness on the normal spectrum of mental illness? But, you know, with the heightened spotlight, with the pressure, with the media scrutiny, with the fact that she had to perform, uh, you were not able to sort of put her in a, a regular treatment situation. But checking the box for dementia as justification on the conservatorship was explosive to me bananas um does that tell you that her father the lawyers were willing to go that hard and far to get this done the system just wasn't set up for people like her right the word dementia was never talked about again and Mm. you see the box checked as a reason for her to be in a conservatorship so i'll just let the audience of this podcast think about what does it mean if it was only checked that once? Yeah. I mean, the conservatorship seems set up. It seems like a very Hollywood thing to have it set up this way. But I think the conservatorship lawyer in your film, the one who wasn't Britney's, obviously, he's an expert on it. We have very particular standards for conservatorship. You have to be unable to meet your needs for food, clothing, health, and shelter. So let me put it this way. I've represented dozens of conservatees in court Not one of them has ever had a job. It seems like a structure that's typically set up like, say, my dad um, has a lot of money. Let's say he has business interests and let's say he's not able to make decisions. And I'm really worried about him being taken advantage of. So, you know, I have to kind of run his life for him in order to protect him. Like that's typically what this mechanism is for. Right. Yeah. And I think that there is a lot of issues with elder abuse in terms Mm. of. Um, you know, questioning if people have the capacity to run their own lives. And it's so funny that the question of capacity so often comes up when it's mixed with finances. And so, you know, it's really looking at a system in which um, if somebody needs a conservator, then it could be a, you know, a fiduciary. If If they have a very close relationship with a family member and they trust them, then that makes sense. But It's not something that is a good mechanism for people because it removes almost your every choice. And so I think that it should only be used in the most dire of circumstances. Hmm. So we also hear from that conservatorship attorney that, you know, his clients, none of them were able to work. Um, And yet Brittany, as we see in your film, was touring the world, earning millions of dollars, not just performing, but also choreographing, you know, leading her troupe of performers, teaching them routines. That was astonishing to me. It was like, She's not allowed to leave her house. She's not allowed to write a check. She's not allowed to make decisions. But she can decide the moves, what's dangerous, what's not dangerous on stage for like these 75 people. Um, Like, can you just talk about that a little bit and how you felt when you looked at these documents and then looked at that, 
you know, contemporaneous footage and saw that contrast? Yes, I think that that was one of the most shocking things to put it side by side of that. It was really about that she lacked capacity, but they were negotiating. Her team was negotiating for the circus tour. And I think that if you look at Britney's most recent uh, you know, Instagrams and we're in October 8th of 2021, you know, she said, I wasn't allowed to leave my house. And thank you so much to the Free Britney movement who never stopped wondering about me. And so I think that it really, from her perspective, from what she has said, she felt like a hostage and uh, was meant and was really pushed into the public when she wasn't able to really form relationships. So it that's what continues to sort of make me feel really sad about the situation for her to have been so much in the public eye, but so unheard, you know, during that time. So not listened to and what she wanted during that time. That was one of the things I was wondering watching her work. First of all, I was thinking it was so unjust that they said she wasn't you know, she didn't have capability to do anything, but then they were sort of pushing her out there into the world. But then I was also wondering, everyone said she loved the work. Did she love it also because it was the only freedom she had? I have to be honest, like, how much did she really enjoy performing versus it was something that was expected of her? And Mm. because so many people are counting on her, uh, you know, it's, she's incredible. She is really, really talented, that much is clear. But one of the sort of controversies I wasn't able to include in the film is that uh, for $2,500, you could book a meet and greet with Britney Spears during her residency. And you see these basically people talking about their experience that they weren't allowed to touch her. They weren't really allowed to uh, say anything to her and it could be as little as 15 seconds just for the photo. And I'm not, you know, you know, people, I, I don't care about the money. It really was the fact that um, I'm not sure if she wanted to do any of those meet and greets. And on top of making all that money from all those ticket, you know, prices, that the fact that that was also something she needed to do. And like Britney Spears is a known introvert. Um, when she is not on stage, it's the, you know, hobnobbing around is not something she likes to do based on my interpretation of, you know, what her life has been like. Um, so that to me felt very weird. You know, you talk about her being a known introvert, which I think I pick up on too. At the same time, she seems to be very attracted to seeking help from and the companionship of people that she has these very fleeting transactional interactions with. You know, I think about the paparazzo. I think about the um, the guy in the bar turned manager, the film director, Jenny, who profiled her for the magazine. And I found myself wondering when she meets people that she interacts with in this way and finds herself connecting with them very briefly, does she reach so quickly outside the bubble to make those connections because the inside is like rotten? Because it's just like, is that like a little bit of a a window to freedom for her? No, I mean, it's really based on who are you around, but hairdressers, some small interviews and people you're romantically linked with. Her bubble was so, so small that you see her asking for help um, by anybody who is around her. Uh, and so that that shows you a lot about what it's like to be Brittany and not really have an inner circle. One of the things, too, that I noticed was that everybody who talked about Brittany 
talked about her a certain way. They all described her as being very magnetic, as being very attracted to her, as wanting to help her. Was that a thread that you heard from everyone you talked to about her? I kept hearing the word lovable when it came to Brittany, that she was just so lovable, that she was down to earth, that she was kind. I think there's a period in her life where she was sort of wrapped up in stuff and maybe she wasn't the nicest gal in town. But for the most part, everybody that interacted with her thought she was incredibly special. And not just because of her star power or, you know, her beauty. It really was sort of her softness and tenderness and, you know, this sort of Southern hospitality. And I think people really wanted to help her because of, you know, who she was and what was happening to her. We're, we sit here in 2021 and just, just now the judge has suspended Jamie Spears, something that we see that she had been asking for since 2009. So I think that, yes, she asked for help, but she did not get it. Hmm. I'm curious about Jenny and her role in this story, because she was a journalist who profiled Brittany and got to know her pretty well over the years. But then her part in the story takes a turn when after trying to profile Brittany again and kind of being stonewalled as a journalist by having to submit her questions in advance to the conservatorship, she decides to try to help and have this clandestine meeting in the bathroom <laughs> to get, you know, to pass these documents off. Um, and I went into the stall and I closed the door and I got the papers ready and got the pen ready and saw her tattoo on her foot or ankle or whatever it is and opened the door and I showed her the spots where she needed to sign and she signed and she just sort of looked at me and said thank you and I said (laughs) I said I'll see you again go The event that happened in the bathroom was something that I knew about really early on. And Jenny felt a calling to help Brittany because she had just really tried to move on with her life after that failed. Brittany sending paperwork to obtain a new lawyer in the bathroom at the Montage Hotel. I think that, you know, what, how I see Jenny Ellescu is a whistleblower. She was something that saw something and tried to help. And yes, people can really, you know, say that Sam Lepby is not trustworthy, that he was sort of somebody that led to the conservatorship. But, you know, this was Jenny trying to help Brittany and help get what she wanted. And I think that, yeah, I really see it as in a whistleblowing capacity. I think it's tough. I mean, there are a lot of conversations right now in journalism about the, you know, traditional journalist slash human being line and how where was that line drawn to begin with and why this is such a great example of that for me because you know the the journalism contract was broken by the conservatorship in a way you know what I mean does that make sense yeah and I also think that we we're having those discussions in real time in documentary filmmaking and what does it mean to be a journalist and be a documentary filmmaker and you know of course in making things for a network like Netflix it is for consumption And so understanding, are we doing these things to change or to entertain people? Can it be both? How do we communicate? It's something I've been thinking a lot about as a result of this film. Hmm. One of the more shocking indications in the film was uh, the use of pharmaceuticals and uh, Brittany potentially being given stimulants when she was going to be performing. Do you think there was any indication that the judges kind of interacting with this case had any sense of 
how these drugs were being used in Britney's case? I think that through what I've seen, yes, everyone was aware that stimulants was a part of the discussion. I'm really curious about um, the part of the film that deals with Lou Taylor, who to me is a fascinating uh, character. And there is a thread throughout this story that you touch on a little bit. um, And I've done some, of course, rabbit hole investigation of myself after watching your film and a lot of reading about her evoking Christianity in almost every interview she gives. Um, Jamie Spears' uh, faith journey himself um, his, you know, potentially having Brittany in, in her own faith journey of his that he may perhaps allegedly had her travel on. Can you just talk about that a little bit in that intersection of this faith conversation overlapping with this whole story and how that was part of the PR push? It's a great question. I think that I grew up, you know, in Minnesota by way of New Jersey And I think living and growing up in the South and their relationship with faith and religion takes on a completely different tenor. And so, you know, you know, Brittany was somebody that was a part of the Baptist church and she sang in the choir. Religion was uh, a concurrent theme throughout the whole family's life. And so when you have somebody like Lou Taylor, who is literally a pastor's wife, offering perspective and insight during a incredibly difficult time, it would make sense why, uh, you know, the Spears family would feel more comfortable with her. I think that the internet has an incredibly intense reaction about Lou Taylor, and I included the very intense legal letter that uh, I was sent. And I think that it becomes this thing where everyone is being so protective and so saying, it wasn't me, I wasn't part of it, of course not me. I'm just a person that was there for conversations. And, you know, everybody in that circumstance told me that they were just around. They were not a part of the decision. Uh, So, you know, that makes me want to dig deeper. And that's what we were trying to do. When people don't want to talk, you know, there's something there, right? I mean, I, the, I, one of my favorite people in your film is Felicia, <laughs> um, Brittany's former assistant, who, like her eyes, like she knows a lot and she's just like, not going to do it. Can't do it. Won't do it. Who is Lou Taylor? I will not touch that one. Sorry. She will chew me up and spit me out. <laughs> I've interviewed enough people to know and she, like, she's like, I can't say that because something will happen to me if I do. I might get sued. I just don't want to go there or whatever. That says so much. Like sometimes an interviewee does not need to say anything to say a lot, right? Yeah, I think I, I find it interesting people's sort of reaction to that. And I think what I was trying to do by showing that she couldn't talk about things was really talk about the fear industrial complex and what it's like to sign NDAs and then to, you know, you're just talking about your friend who you worked with for many, many years and for her to be have to be really intense and like, I can't answer that. That to me, as you said, it, it speaks volumes. And so that was why we were trying to, trying to show that, that people were afraid. You know, when Adam Streisand, that lawyer that Brittany was briefly able to engage to try to help get her out of the conservatorship uh, was basically barred from the court proceeding um, and not allowed to help her. It made me wonder, did you discover, is there ever 
any mechanism for somebody like Brittany to get out of one of these things? Um, Because conservatorship, it's supposed to protect you from predators, but it almost seemed like the conservatorship became the predator in this case, like the actual functioning thing itself. Um, And this was somebody who was trying to help. I was really shocked by that. Yeah, once you get in a conservatorship, it's really hard to get out of one, nearly impossible. And I think that often it comes with a lot of evaluations and how people who have never met you or worked with you have said, you know, I think she's doing better or she's doing worse. And so that, the, that Brittany is not allowed to say, hey, I've had enough of this is, you know, is really upsetting. But I think that's what a conservatorship is. You've lost your voice and it's been given to another party. And you, you know, as we say, as Adnan Ghalib says inside the film, you know, he is Britney Spears. He has become Britney Spears, talking about Jamie Spears. And so mm-hmm. that, to me, really, like, showed the sort of relationship between the conservatorship, Jamie Spears, and Britney Spears. There's a very interesting interview in the film with Dr. Spar, who appears to have signed off on that dementia paperwork, but was cagey about his involvement during your interview. He says he couldn't verify that he had evaluated Britney after appearing to indicate that he was. I'm not going to verify that I was ever brought in to evaluate Britney Spears. So here is a court document said, uh, according to Dr. Spar's declaration. Okay, again, show me my signed declaration. Why did he agree to talk to you for the film if he couldn't talk about it at all? Come on, Rebecca, I'm very persuasive. (laughs) She says as she twirls her mustache. (laughs) I have a giant mustache, everyone. Did he think he was coming in to talk about something else completely? <laughs> Absolutely not. I would never trick somebody into it. <laughs> it's just very interesting. Um, you know, just really interesting conversation that you had there. It was one of my favorite interviews. After your film was released, a uh, judge did grant Britney Spears' request to suspend her father from the conservatorship. I would love to hear your reaction to that news, how you felt about it in real time, and how you feel about it now. So that day... Everyone was asking me what I thought was going to happen. And based on my understanding, it was unclear if the the conservatorship could be terminated. Based on typically, um, as a liability measure, there is some sort of evaluation. And when Matthew Rosengart began talking about that this is not suitable, Brittany cannot have this, Jamie needs to be removed... And the fact that Britney is willing to be in the conservatorship for longer if Jamie Spears is, uh, is suspended pending an investigation because they want to know sort of what, what went on. I mean, that said so, so, so much to me. And literally, Rebecca, it would be unthinkable to think that that was happening two and a half years ago when I started. Absolutely unthinkable. It had been going on for 11 years straight. There was no, there was no hiccup in sight. Uh, so I had Andrew Gallery was there and also we had uh, a member of our team sitting in and basically reporting back to me all that was happening. And I ended up live tweeting the, the day and what was going on. And it was finally really significant for me to be out about a, a journalist covering this case and saying, you know, some of the things that I was thinking about and, you know, really, I really sort of stuck to the events of the day, but I was astonished and, you know, I'm trying to keep in mind, like, you know, my journalistic objectivity, but the fact that we found 
there to be systemic issues within the Britney Spears conservatorship. And then finally the judge said, Jamie Spears is, is suspended. It was monumental, absolutely one of the best days of my life. And I think that that shows you that I don't have a life beside my projects, but you know, I just, I just couldn't believe it. And I felt, even though I don't know Britney Spears, I felt incredibly happy and like, wow, this is really happening. Um, now that Britney is a little bit more free, of course, she's announced her engagement. And now we're seeing the inevitable too much too soon. Britney tabloid headlines, tweets. And it makes me think and ask you, um, even if it is too much too soon, even if we are going to see another path, that's not great. Is it even any of our business? Yeah, I think a lot of people talk to me on background that if she's left to her own devices, she's going to spend all of her money. And my response is, it's her money. She can spend it. Enough. Oh, she's going to spend all of her money. Great. Fine. Well, she was the one earning it. So that, to me, is how I feel about it, that if things come to pass, because everything comes to pass in our lives, then people will be so quick to point that this was you know, she wasn't ready, but I think, you know, 13 years is enough to, you know, to quote Brittany, it's been 13 years and it's enough. And she wants her own next step. So there are many famous musicians who struggle with severe mental illness, but they've been able to maintain careers. I mean, Brian Wilson is touring now. Sinead O'Connor is writing, making music. Uh, Ray Davies of the Kinks. Of course, numerous others whose mental illness we probably don't know anything about because they've been successfully living with it and treating it. Can you imagine a future for Britney where she lives a regular life, living with mental illness, uh, manages it, and just continues to rock on? Yeah, I mean, I have my own mental health struggles, like a lot of us do, and I, I continue to rock on. So I think that, you know, we hope for the, the best. And it's not just a thing that celebrities deal with. It's, you know, I was addicted to alcohol, and I've been sober for six years. I think recovery is possible if you do the work. And so I think it's, you know, we, we get but a day reprieve and we don't know what's going to happen, but I absolutely think whatever she wants is possible for her. And now that she's, you know, back in a decision-making role. Yeah, I really hope that for her too, that anything might be possible. And I, first of all, can't wait to see what she does next, but I also can't wait to see what you make next because I love all your films so much, Erin. Thank you so much for talking to me about Britney versus Spears. It was just fantastic. I loved all your questions and I think that it really brings out the investigator in people, which I love. Like the fact that you went down these rabbit holes and were like, okay, well, this is gonna, well, this I'm gonna see, <laughs> when did this happen? And like that to me is the sign of a really successful documentary, if I can say so myself, that, you know, obviously you were prepping for an interview, but people are really doing that and really engaging in it. And the fact that I thought of something with my brain and, you know, some people, other people in the media did too, but that like people are getting involved and trying to understand. And then I really truly believe that that research could end up being useful in your life, in somebody else's life. You know, it's not just about Britney Spears. The movie is really about the silencing of powerful women and what does it mean to feel silent? What does it mean to feel heard? And so I think that for all human beings, I think that is something that has happened to us. So I'm hoping that, you know, in watching somebody like Britney get her voice back, 
we can have our own. Erin, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Erin Lee Carr. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to this show and stay tuned for all new episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>